0: The Reluctant Conformist A Book by Richard Cowley Chapter 9 Episode 2 The Researcher The meeting took place a month later in London, at Dorothea's South Kensington home. Those present were recognized as Europe's most knowledgeable on Picasso ceramics. There was, however, a single but crucial absentee, No representative from the Picasso administration was present. To intensify the near palpable sense of tension that pervaded the room, Magnus removed the plate from its cushion padding with slow deliberation. His reward for this theatrical ploy was an audible intake of breath from the illustrious gathering at the first glimpse of his find each specialist was allocated exclusive access to examine the piece so they could independently document their observations and conclusions after the inspections all were supportive of dorothea's assertion that there could be little doubt as to the authorship of the work they gushed in admiration at magnus's good fortune in finding the plate especially in a rural french town famous only for its red chili peppers and doing so before breakfast as well Mostly, though, they pondered upon the improbable good fortune that led Dorothea, via Kurt Schwitters, and the unlikely Manx sculptor, Willie Lees, to Magnus's blog and the link to Picasso. "'It's magnificent,' Dorothea enthused, after scrupulously examining the artwork. "'There could be little doubt it's the work I hoped it would be. It's even more wonderful than I'd imagined.' "'Yes,' Magnus pressed. But is it a Picasso? No, it's not a Picasso, she replied firmly. I believe it to be THE Picasso, not just an original piece, but one produced by him, with roguish intent. During her search for her definitive reference catalogue on the artist's ceramic works, Dorothea identified several anomalous works he produced as demonstration pieces for other artists intent on following his lead into ceramic art. Dorothea believed she was examining the plate which Picasso made as a specimen piece for the renowned colorist Marc Chagall to learn from. At the time, Chagall had limited experience with various decorative techniques that applied to ceramic art particularly the use of chromatic oxides and glazes compatible with his colorful style in the late 1940s chagall returned to france after wartime exile in the usa he eventually settled in the south of france close to the village of Valerice. this community had been a pottery enclave since before roman times and it was where picasso almost single-handedly revitalized the declining ceramics industry with his boundless energy and creative flair. Always keen to engage with new and popular artistic outlets, Chagall also started experimenting with ceramics. This wasn't the first time he'd followed in the footsteps of the magician Picasso. After arriving in Paris from his native Russia in 1910, Chagall sensed the new artistic fixation with cubism. He reworked and enlarged many of his early gloomy paintings in a fresher quasi-cubist style, an adaptation which quickly established his reputation within Parisian artistic circles. Some overly critical pundits attest that Chargau fostered a career by painting variations on a limited repertoire of motifs over and over for fifty years. By contrast, Picasso lived in fear of inadvertently copying his own work. Robert Hughes, the renowned Australian writer and art critic for Time magazine, once wrote, perhaps unfairly, that some of Chargal's later works were cloying ethnic kitsch. In the art world, it seems Chargal remains a colourful, if contentious, celebrity. I understand Picasso's ceramic tutorial wasn't as innocent as may be imagined, Dorothea said to Magnus. She explained that during the early 1950s, both artists were working at the Medora Pottery, where the doyen Picasso, who had been immersed in ceramics for several years, had produced many hundreds of original pieces, was working close by the novice Chagall. Picasso sensed Chagall was paying close attention to his practiced hand, whilst feigning absorption in his own work. Chagall's temperament precluded asking for advice from someone whose artistic equal he reputedly considered himself to be. He was an artist who, it has been whispered, amazed colleagues with his capacity to maintain a robust, humoristic stamina well into his dotage, without a word being spoken. And in a mood of triumphalist wit, Picasso deviated from his typical spare style to produce a painterly and highly chromatic work, which he knew the famous colorist Chagall was studying fixedly, albeit out of the corner of his eye. And this plate, Magnus, I believe to be the work produced that morning as a virtuoso mocking piece, exquisitely executed, impishly dexterous, a tour de force, "'And now, thanks to you, gifted with an even more bizarre and treasured provenance "'than one could imagine,' said Dorothea. "'Not only that,' she continued, "'but Picasso mockingly echoes Chagall's famous early painting, "'Self-Portrait with Seven Digits, "'by giving the knight on your plate one too many fingers on his left hand. "'It's fantastic!' full of egotistical tension, and the playful scorn of rivals. It would seem to be a significant piece of art history, Magnus mused happily, but how do I gather sufficient documentary evidence to support your findings? I already have access to detailed documentation regarding the plate's authorship and verifiable provenance up to 1998. Until now... I only had descriptions of the plate, not a clear image. To hold the actual plate is something I could never have believed possible. The thought of you carrying Picasso's most painterly ceramic work across the Basque Mountains in your backpack makes my blood run cold. This story has imbued the find and its provenance with a matchless romantic life all of its own. What do you intend to do with the plate? firstly i must satisfy the picasso administration in paris of the plate's authorship he replied if paris accept the evidence and attribute the plate to picasso then it should be made available for all to see not mounted on my wall at home you don't intend to donate it to a museum do you dorothea queried incredulously have you any idea how valuable it is at auction it may challenge even the choicest hellenistic examples for early chinese ming dynasty porcelain to become one of the world's most precious ceramics dorothea was a whiz with paperwork and officialdom in only two months all necessary documentation was compiled indexed verified validated and dispatched to paris for the picasso administration's appraisal on the strength of Dorothea Macaulay's name alone, most international art houses had accepted her endorsement of the plate and were vying to catalogue the work in forthcoming specialist auction sales. The plate's anachronistic placement in Picasso's ceramic ovure, together with its aberrant provenance and bizarre significance in modern art history, let alone the uncanny allure of the piece itself, all combined to give the plate a matchless appeal to galleries, museums, and private collectors. Dorothea's connections paid huge dividends. Through interviews, newspaper articles, specialist journals, art publications, and appearances on TV and radio, she generated enormous international interest in the piece. Expectation of the plate's sale were so high and competition so keen that one of the international auction houses uncharacteristically offered to forego its considerable seller's commission in order to secure the piece in-house for its publicity value alone. Estimates of the potential realisable price for the piece were eye-watering and, if all went well, would leave Magnus more than comfortably off. For all Dorothea's immersion in the promotion and authentication process, she sought no more reward than to rest content with the good fortune at bringing the important work out of obscurity and into the public domain there can be little doubt however that the international exposure she gleaned from tracking down the plate greatly enhanced her celebrity as a ceramic expert and successful researcher These triumphs lent considerable kudos to her enviable record of academic achievements and would undoubtedly promote sales of her soon-to-be-published Picasso's Original Ceramics, Catalogue raisonné, and intensify interest in the mooted television documentary to follow. All the while, I observed and archived this unlikely cycle of events with amused, if incredulous, objectivity. I pondered upon the improbability that so unlikely a sequence of seemingly unrelated incidents could lead to the discovery and authentication of this earthenware masterpiece. If, as many are inclined to believe, the events are guided by a benign hidden hand which influences all, then for those who accept this creed, the discovery of the plate was nothing more than proof that such a power exists, and that the path of divine intervention has been followed with some as yet undetermined mystical intent, and all is well with the world. For those who do not hold to this doctrine, unearthing a plate may be but another illustration that the whole of existence, including imagination, consciousness, and ancestral memory, is the consequence of the unending series of random events that has been going on since time itself began, and possibly even before that. Others, including my terrestrial host Magnus, subscribe to Shakespeare's challenge to The Limitations of Man's Thought and Language. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. And as for what I later learned about these unknown unknowns, well, let's wait and see.